Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. You guys can grab a seat. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to slip your hands up. The ushers will grab one for you. You're also welcome to look on your electronic device as well. God has been taking us on this really cool journey through this book of Corinthians. And, and over the last two chapters, kind of chapter 8 and chapter 9, chapter 8 began this discussion that was a real big question that the people in Corinth had for the Apostle Paul about this idea of meat sacrificed to idols. And it's kind of talked about what idolatry was at the beginning of it. And I said I would, we'd talk about it some more. Today is the continuation of it. In the middle of that section, it kind of seemed like he took a little bit of a detour where he talked about what does it mean for us to have these freedoms and these liberties and how do we look at our brothers and sisters or those that don't know the gospel and, and give up of those freedoms or those rights, whether it's financial or anything that would be a moral thing to do. He, he said, look, it's not that they're wrong. It's that we should always be thinking with the lens of how in, in any way, shape or form does this hinder the gospel in anyone's life. And if it does, I will gladly relinquish those rights. I will gladly let those go because those are less, the rights are less important to me than the fact that the gospel advances in the lives of those around me. And so that's where the scripture has gone. Uh, there's this old kind of adage, like this idea, this, this promise, if you, um, how do you know if a stove is hot? You're not supposed to touch it. That's the, like that's the whole point. Like this is that's the issue is that is that you should just see the glowing red amber and realize this stove is hot. Maybe I shouldn't touch it. You can even get close to it and feel the radiating heat. But we as people have this unbelievable ability to just completely forget history at times and and want to learn it for ourselves. We want to touch the hot stove. We want to say, okay, I want to know for sure it's hot. And we put our hand on this burning stove. And over and over and over again, history repeats itself where we make the same mistakes over and over again when all we have to do is just trust our parents, trust the person next to us saying, hey, this stove's hot, don't touch it. Whether it's our curiosity or our pride, whatever it is, we tend to get in this cycle of doing the same things that have been happening over and over and over again. And that's kind of where this text is today. This idea that we, we believe that somehow we're the exception to the, hot, the stove being hot when it's bright red and that we can find out for ourselves and therefore we're the only one that's ever experienced that. We're the only ones that's ever gone through that. So we're just going to go ahead and touch it and then we get burned. The Apostle Paul, inspired by God, does something really brilliant here in this text where he's been talking about this idea of idolship and what's been going on. Again, in Corinth, there were a mess. There were a lot of people that were, that were taking part in the feast to sacrifice meat, these idols. They were worshiping other gods besides God himself. And what would happen in, in a form of worship, usually what happened in the day in Corinth is there was a, a feast that you would do to some god of some sort. And then there was always, like in Aphrodite, there were a thousand temple prostitutes. And there was always uh, eating and drinking and then some form of sexual interaction that would happen in these ceremonies. And so that's, that's kind of the, the backdrop that's going in here. And when we come to a text like this, we have to establish two things. First off, I want to just say this at the front. Today's text is a little bit difficult. We have been in this book for a while. This is one of those ones that it's not something that's just like, oh, it's so nice to look at and see. But I believe the truth in this text is so profound and so big that if we could just, if we could just let the Spirit really work in our hearts on this text, I think there'd be a lot less burnt hands in today's church. 
the first thing we have to establish before we move forward is that we have to, as, as children of God, if you are here today and you said at some point, some version, you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you gave yourself, you submitted to him, whatever you, however you verbalize it, when, if you submitted yourself to God as his child and you identify as a Christian, as a small Christ, then you have to, we have to recognize something about this, this Bible, that it's not just stories for us to look at, that it's not just something to, to read every now and then when it's like, oh, we're in trouble, we should pull it out and blow the dust off and see if it says anything there. And it's not something that we look at and go, I know what it says, but yeah, but I can just do it this way. As children of God, as disciples of Christ, this is living word of God. We don't get to look at it and go, ah, I know what it says, but I don't really care. We don't, get to, we don't get to just put it on the shelf and say, well, I'll read it someday. This is literally the living word of God. God preserved the stories and the history of what, what had happened, and it's all for a point, building to a climactic point of Jesus Christ on the cross, and now we are in this age to come where we're pleading for Jesus to come back so that all things can be made new as the old is passing away. This, from the very beginning, from the very beginning of God created to the very end of I'm coming back, is meant for us to live by to hunger for and to read and to listen to. I, I don't know how often I, I, I might freak out on people. And if you're at the men's breakfast on Thursday, I kind of did a little bit because I'm, I'm getting tired in my own life and in others' lives when, I see, when we see Scripture that's just clear as clear and we go, yeah, yeah, but. I know what it says, but, but it doesn't apply to me here. This text today speaks to that reality. We have to understand, I'm going to move forward as this isn't just some kind of neat piece of paper and and book held together for time. No, this is something that God has sustained, that God has inspired, that God has written, and that God is living in it, and that this is what we, as children of God, are to live by. If we don't believe that, if you're here today and you don't believe that, a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to be like, uh, uh, uh. if you are a child of God, you don't have a choice. If you submit yourself as a follower of Jesus, then you don't get to look at this and go, well, yeah, but I don't, like, no, this is, this is your livelihood. And that's what this scripture is. And so he takes a, a, a big turn. And so at the end of last week in chapter nine, we talked about it. I'm not gonna go through all of it, but he, he comes, comes with this idea. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he talks about this idea of, man, there's a way with which I can discipline myself. He lines it to athletes in this picture of, hey, you, you want to win a wreath. You want to win this perishable thing. He's like, there's an unperishable crown for the children of God that we are actually after. And he says, you should discipline yourself. You should live in a way where, where you run from the freedoms that you may have, at the fear that they might hurt someone else, where you, where you don't give yourself too much to freedoms because you're, you're, you want to submit yourself entirely to God. You should be disciplined. This should be a daily thing. You should wake up and discipline yourself in the word. And then he goes into this where he stops in chapter 10, which is bringing us all the way back to the very beginning of chapter eight when he says, now concerning food offered to idols. This is kind of the bookend. We had just took a little detour over the last two chapters. It says, for I do not want you to be unaware. Now I'm gonna pause for a second here. Some scholars believe that this is kind of a jab at the, the people in Corinth. If you remember the first four chapters, one of the big things that was happening in Corinth is they felt themselves as knowledgeable. Remember, he was doing the whole thing, like knowledge of the world is, is considered foolishness to God, and, and the knowledge of God is considered foolishness to the world. And they, they really wanted to be intelligent people. And so him coming out here and saying, for I do not want you to be unaware, he's saying, so I don't, hey, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant. And so some scholars think this is kind of a jab, like, hey, you're really smart people. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't think that's what he's doing here because of what he says right after this. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. 
I think this is a step of him coming in saying, hey, as kind of the spiritual father to them, the one that had come by God and as a missionary journey and preached the gospel and many had come to faith in there, I think he's coming in here saying, look, don't be unaware. Don't be ignorant. I don't want this for you. I want better for you, brothers. Very important that we see that he says brothers here. He's speaking to predominantly Gentile people, people that are not of Jewish descent. Okay, and then he goes on and says, that our fathers, so brothers, that our fathers, the Apostle Paul was a great Jew. Remember, he was raised in that. He's in this way. He says, but our father, we're all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and we're all, and we're baptized and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. He pulls them in in a way that most of us reading that today go, oh, neat. This should be one of those really profound pauses and moments for us to go, wait, wait, hang a second. Very few in here, I'm assuming, are of Jewish descent. I'm sure there are some, but most of us probably are not of Jewish descent. The scriptures in the Old Testament and everyone in this day knew that the Israelites, the Hebrews, they were the people of God. And that God, that Father Abraham was their father. And he's saying, no, 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 brothers, our fathers. He looks at a, at a room full of Gentiles through this letter and says, you have the fathers of Israel as well. You can sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Like you can actually do it. And I'm one of them, right? Like you can do that. You've been pulled in. You've been grafted and you've been adopted in. You have a father that is the same father of the children of Israel and you are now one with them. To them, that would have been a mind-blowing, wow, we've been, we've been chosen too. We've been brought in. We're not less than the Jews. There's not this Jewish Christian and then these Gentile Christians. It's we are on par. We are together. We're brothers and sisters and he's our father. That's a really big thing. And then he does back into history, which many of them would have known, even though they didn't have Jewish descent. Again, this is one of those things we don't have time to go back to all of it, but I would encourage you to go back and read Exodus. You can read Numbers. You can read Leviticus. You can get to Deuteronomy. You can get to kind of all this stuff here. But basically what he does is he goes in and says, look, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. If you've watched the Disney movie, you understand the whole passing through the sea, right? The parting of the Red Sea. What happens is the people of Israel in this day, as you can see this in Exodus, they were enslaved to Egypt and God calls Moses and Moses is kind of weak and he invites Aaron with him. And so God uses them to free the people of Israel from enslavement to Egypt. And so this, this slavery is happening and all these plagues happen and finally they let them go. And when they're leaving, the people of Egypt chase the Israelites and they pass through the Red Sea. It's parted and they pass through it as if it's on dry ground. When the Egyptians come into it, the water overtakes them and it's gone. So this is a reference saying, look, our fathers, they've been under the cloud. And so when they left this spot, the, the scriptures teach us that during the day, there was a cloud, an ominous cloud that was the presence of God that was over the people of Israel. And they just followed this cloud. And at night, this cloud was a fire. And this is the presence of God saying, look, our fathers were under God. They were under God. And he goes, uses the term baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The way he's using baptism here isn't necessarily the idea of immersion that comes out of Romans 6, 3 through 4, what we see in the scripture. He's talking about, in, in a sense, of being aligned to God, being his people. We're his children. We're, we're aligning ourselves to God. We're following him. We're literally saying that we are his, he's ours. 
Our fathers had this. And so he's saying, look, you guys have this. And so this is one of those like, oh, it's so encouraging. Thank you, Paul, right? They're like, all right, yes, well, this is great. We're, we're in this. And then he goes on and says, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, just a quick lesson. When you see the word spiritual in the New Testament, it's not the ambiguous spiritual that we use. Like it's just a spiritual experience. It's always relating to the work of the Spirit of God. So he's saying this spirit, this spiritual drink, there's water that they experienced. They had this thing. What Paul is doing is drawing together and by reminding them that the biblical stories aren't just interesting illustrations. They're more than that. They're more than moral or religious truths. One scholar says it this way. He says, they are parts of a long narrative that has now reached its climax in the Messiah and in the people who have come to belong to him through the gospel. They, like we, are the people upon whom the ends of the ages have come the people who live in the strange period of history when God's long-awaited fulfillment has begun to appear in Jesus and in the Spirit, even as the old age rumbles on to its close. He's reminding them, he's showing them, look, you're a part of the story. You're a part of the narrative. You're not just looking at history. You're not just looking back and going, oh, it's neat they did that. What happened with them is a part of your story. And it's so important that they connect. That's so important for us today to recognize that what happens in Israel is connected to us because we have to see this connection. He's saying, look, they all ate same spiritual food. Well, when God, when they were wandering in the desert, they were hungry and they started complaining like we have nothing to eat. And God literally brings them manna. He brings them food from heaven. Every morning they wake up, there's this bread-like thing that they can eat. And then there's the whole rock situation, right? Like the, where they're, we don't have any water and we don't know what to do. And, and God speaks to Moses and says, bring your staff over here. And, and water comes up out of this rock. And so he's saying, look, the spirit of God provided for them just like the spirit of God provides for you. They were under God and you were under God. He's establishing, look, there's no difference. He's trying to line them together. They're our fathers, and we are their brothers and sisters. We are together in one. They were under God. The Spirit of God was in place. And then he goes on and says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, some scholars believe that this is kind of a, the Apostle Paul speaking into a rabbinic tradition where they basically said that the well, the rock that Moses first met with the people in Israel, the well literally followed them throughout the desert so that they had water. We know that they had water because no, I've been to that desert. I've been there. It's hot. There's no way you're going to make it long without water, right? And this is the water that they say, and that's kind of a tradition. I don't necessarily think that's what he's doing. And again, some scholars disagree with that. At the end of the day, we know that ultimately he's doing two things. One is that the water was with Israel the whole time. That was a work of God. And what he's doing is saying, that was, that was Christ. Jesus was with you, sustaining you. Jesus was with you. The Messiah was with you in Israel. The Messiah is with you today. It's through Christ. And he says the rock, this is the only time that in Deuteronomy where this, this is brought up is the one time that God is referenced as the rock. And so we see this kind of tying. You're saying, hey, the rock is Jesus. We see Jesus use the term rock in the New Testament. We see it all over. He's a cornerstone. This idea thing that everything will be built on him. Right? So we see this recognition of him saying, look, our fathers in Israel Man, they, they had the blessing of God. The water was parted for them. They had the covering of God of the cloud. They had the, the spirit of God providing food and drink. And the rock that was with them was Christ. And so do you. Do you see what he's doing? He's, he's, he's building them up. He's strengthening them just to punch them down. No, I'm just kidding, but that's kind of what it feels like, right? Because he goes on right here and says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, this is, this is key. He's saying, look, most of them. Now, 
We know that two come out of the promised land and actually get to go to the promised land through this whole thing, right? But most of them were overthrown. That means a big majority of them experienced the blessing of manna and water and, and had Christ as the rock, but never really fully submitted or surrendered themselves to him, never really followed him. That means that there's many that made mistake after mistake after mistake that didn't make it in the promised land. There are many that were his children that didn't make it in the promised land. There are many that weren't his children that were playing the part that didn't make it into the promised land. But what he says here, he says, most of them didn't. So he's, he's, he's doing something. They, they call it typology or t- typological thing where they're bringing the, the reference of where we are and just kind of overlaying it to the Old Testament and saying, look, here, I'm just going to show you. This is why this is so important for you. This story is here. This, this history is here for you. Why? Because I'm showing you that the very same thing. They were under God. They had the Spirit of God. They had Jesus Christ. You are under God. You have the Spirit of God, and you are under Christ. But even in that situation, it doesn't guarantee anything if you don't ever truly submit yourself to God. So he says, now these things took place as examples for us. You hear that? When you read Exodus, you need to read it as an example for you. When you read these Old Testament scriptures, you don't read it as, oh, that's neat that that happened. He's like, no, no, this is an example for you. The word example is kind of weak. In Greek, it's a lot more, it's like an instruction. It means, it means something that we can not just like, oh, look at that's neat. It's like, no, this is really the way to go. This is how we're supposed to recognize. It's not just a, oh, that's neat. It's a like really truly understand that this example is the right way or the wrong way. It's not an ideation thing there. And he's saying, look, these were example for you that we might not desire evil as they did. There's the stove again, guys. History repeating itself over and over and over again. How many times have you read the Old Testament scripture and you look at the people of Israel and you're like, how can you be so miserable? You got a cloud of God ahead of you. You got all these things like you, it should be so clear to you. How can you, how can you be missing this? But yet he's saying, hey, look, they gave themselves to evil desires. And we are susceptible of doing the very same thing. And he goes on and he lists out here, he lists four areas, four things that the people of Israel did. So he, he aligns them. Look, you're children of God, you're under him, you got the spirit of God, all those things, right? And then he goes and says, now here's what they did. Here's what they gave themselves to. And he goes through these four things. He says, do not do it. Don't do it. It's not a, hey, dabble with it. He says, don't give in to evil desires. Don't do it. Don't give yourself this. Do not do it. And so he goes on. He says, in verse 7, he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is speaking of when Moses goes to Mount Sinai, goes up the hill, Mount Sinai, 40 days, 40 nights. He's getting the commandments from God. Well, the people down low, they get bored. They get idle. They don't know what to do. And so they convince Aaron to, to make them some idols. Now hear this, to worship God. They want the idols so that they could worship God. They aren't trying to worship Aphrodite or anything else. They say, hey, would you make us some idols so that we can worship God? And so what they do is they say, okay, let's bring some gold that's from Egypt. And they say, oh, this is great. Like God freed us from Egypt. We'll use that only so we can remind it of, of God's goodness. We'll make these golden casts. And then they start worshiping God through these idols. And the reason why I put the little air quotes there is because here's what happens, is what the Israelites do is they, they use the golden calves as, hey, this is a means with which we can worship God, but they lose sight of the fact that they're literally applying the means with which they had been worshiping pagan gods in Egypt to God. 
So they're like, oh, I gotta worship God. So while we did it this way in Egypt, we made golden images and we worshiped those things and did it. And this word here, eat, drink, and play, I really think that where it's going in chapter 10, this is kind of a push into the Lord's Supper. And we're gonna talk about that next week. But really, we gotta understand that the word play is actually a euphemism for orgy. So what happened is, is these people in Israel, they would, they would sat down and they ate and they drank and then they did the sexual things that come after idol worship. And this is what they were doing is they were worshiping the way that they would have in Egypt. This is what Aphrodite does. You come together, you have a feast, you drink, and then there's temple prostitutes. And so the people of Israel give themselves to this and, he, and, and he's saying, do not do it. Do not do it. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm not sure many of you woke up today trying to fight in golden calf to worship. I'm just, just going on a limb that you haven't been like trying to go to Zales or wherever and be like, hey, can I get enough gold melted together? I'm gonna make myself a little golden cow. My assumption is that that's not on our radar. But idolatry is, guys. Idolatry is the worship of anything that isn't God. And I know many of us, oh, I, don't, I don't worship. I don't worship anything but God. But when you give your time, energy, focus, fears, resources to something, that's worship. Worship is, is, is meant to be our entire lives. God doesn't say only worship me on Sundays when you sing. He says worship me with your lives. You are a living sacrifice to me. Idolatry is worship of anything in place of God's. Things that you can only find meaning in or, or things that you find your worth in, whether it's power or being accepted or having the right kids or being looked at in a different way or being shown as a servant. All of those things become idolatry. Honestly, many of us idolize our children or we idolize our marriages we idolize our work. And he says, hey, don't do it. Don't be like our brothers, our fathers. Don't do it. Most of them gave themselves to idolatry. You don't have to touch the burning stove. It's hot. Don't put your hand there. Do not give yourself to idolatry. Stop worshiping other things. Stop worshiping what people think of you. Stop worshiping what power you have. Stop worshiping your career. Stop worshiping your ideology. Stop worshiping your intelligence. Stop worshiping your theology and worship God alone, is what he's saying. Idolatry seeps itself into every aspect of our lives. Materialism. We, we can't give ourselves to it. Actually, the very next verse next week starts with the idea of flee idolatry. You remember what else he said flee to? Flee sexual immorality. Run. The, the Israelites gave themselves to idolatry the Lord preserved this part of, part of history for you, for me, so that we don't idolize things. One of the ways you can tell you idolize something is when it's taken from you, what your reaction is. Idolatry is, seeps itself in every aspect of every part of our lives if we're not careful. And he just says, do not do it. Don't give yourselves to evil as they did. Do not have idolatry. You can read Exodus 32 if you want to work through the story of the golden calves later on. Um, he then goes on and says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. He's going back to Numbers 25, 1 through 9 is where the story is. This is a story where the Israelites were, basically they came in contact with these Moabite women and one thing led to another and they invited them to go and eat with them. And then they started sacrificing idols with them. And then it turned into a bunch of, sexual immorality, and this idea, again, for us today, just in case you're wondering, in the scriptures we see it, they understood, idolatry and sexual immorality almost were like 
they came together. Rarely did one happen without the other, is what is being taught here. But he's, he's using them separately. We spent a lot of time talking about this in chapter 5. I really don't want to teach on it again, so go back and listen to that. That'd be awesome. Thank you. He's saying, look, there's, he goes to the story where this, what happens is these, these sexually immoral immorality happens with the Moabite women, and then 24,000 people die on spot because of this act. Now, what's weird is he says 23,000 here. There are a lot of scholars, really smart people, that have tried to come up with some really great theories on why there's a thousand person difference. And I'll just tell you right now, you can go anywhere you want with it. There's many good reasons. There's nothing that really lands like, this is definitely it. I encourage you to study if that you want. But what he's doing is he's going back to this story in Numbers, where this is exactly what happened, is that God takes very seriously idolatry. God takes very seriously sexual immorality. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, oh, it's neat. He's preserved for us. Look at the justice of God. Look at the vengeance of God when people act disobedient to him. He shows that. He says sexual morality is there. What happened is the Israelites went to the sacrificial rites and then partook of the meat that had been offered to the Moabite gods and then bowed themselves down to these gods. They worshiped him, which is the very thing that people in Corinth were struggling and wrestling with. Remember, they're like, do we, do we eat the meat that was sacrificed or not? Can we buy it in the market? Because it's really hard to tell. He's saying, look, you, you, you don't give yourself to sexual morality. It will lead to idolatry. It will lead to worshiping other things. Don't give yourself to it. We must not do it. He goes on, the third thing he says is that we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. This is coming out of Numbers 21, five through six is kind of where you see this idea of this test. What happens is the Israelites tested God with a number of different things. They complained, they, they demanded food from him and, and God was angry and so he sends snakes to them in the desert and, and thousands are, are dying because of the bites of the snakes and then finally Moses pleads with God and he gives him and says, okay, hold your staff up in this spot, create this little snake. If, if anyone looks at it, if they're bitten, they will not die. I encourage you to go back and listen to it again but he says this is a really big deal to test God. It's not something small. Testing God is, is putting yourself in place of God. If you want to test God, say, I will do this if you do this. You're, you're testing God. You're putting him in some spot where you believe that you're peer with him or you're above him. That is not provoked by that in a healthy way. It's not something that we should do. We shouldn't test God. We see the next one, and this is one that I believe that I would be willing to bet that every single one of us, myself included, struggle with idolatry to some extent or greatly in other extents. Um, maybe some of you struggle less with sexual immorality the way it's defined in the scriptures. Maybe some of you are really wrestling with it. And then maybe some of us don't understand we're testing God or we're doing it. This next one, he says, I think every single one of us, if I like said, raise your hand if you did this this week, every single one of us would raise your hand. And the ones that didn't are probably lying or they idolize their image and they don't want anyone else to see them as a struggler. He says, he goes on and says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor should we grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the angel of destruction or the destroyer. There's a bunch of different scriptures this could be talking about. Number 16 talks about the 14,700 that died because of grumbling or numbers 14. 26 through 35 would maybe be view, but I don't know if you've ever spent any time reading Deuteronomy numbers or any, of the, any Exodus or any of that. They just grumbled all the time. They just whined all the time. Honestly, I feel like it's kind of embarrassing because I feel like I whine quite a bit. Like, why did that happen? 
right? We got, I'm, I got kids and I'm trying to tell them not to whine and then they hear me whine about different things. Complain, complain, complain. You know what one scholar said? I thought this was brilliant. He said, murmuring, grumbling, complaining is dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will for our lives and the lives of others and is a sin that he does not take lightly. Even in view of his own grace, when God's people question or complain, now I want to pause for a second, there is nothing wrong with saying, God, I want to know what you're doing here. I want to question you. This is the kind of questioning you say, why, God, I know better than you. That's what he's talking about here. It says, question or complain, they are challenging his wisdom, his grace, his goodness, his love, and his righteousness. Our need for contentment is not merely for our own well-being, which it is, but for God's honor and glory. Complaining dishonors our heavenly father. Contentment glorifies him. When we, when we complain about our circumstances, our situations, we are essentially saying we know better than God and it shouldn't be this way. When we complain, when we grumble about these things, we say, God, I wish I had a better job. He says, well, that's great, but I'm doing something with you in this job. You, you don't understand it. I'm, I'm about glorifying myself and bringing glory to me. I'm about your sanctification journey, not your job. When we complain or grumble, we are whining to him. We're, we're literally saying, God, I'm dissatisfied with you. It takes very seriously the sin of grumbling and complaining. He shows us in his history through the scriptures of how much the Israelites just complained. It was never good enough. Guys, I'm afraid that many of you sitting here today feel the exact same way. It just can't get good enough. Someone's always disappointing you. Someone's always just slightly off. You always find the negative in something instead of just being thankful, which is talked about all over in scripture. We complain and complain and complain. And guys, it does not produce the righteousness of God. We should not grumble or complain. The Corinthians are warned against following the example of those in Israel who tested the Lord's patience by insisting on eating the food they craved or desired, even if it entailed provoking him. Such insolence can expect to be met with judgment. God shows us these stories through the Apostle Paul. Shows us, lies this in, says, hey, you guys, we've seen the stove. It's, it's there. We've seen what happens when the top's hot. We've seen what happens when we put our hand on it. Don't do it. Don't give yourself to evil desires. And just to kind of drive this one home, he says something so brilliant. God just does something incredible here. See this in verse 11. He says, now these things have happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. He's saying, look, these things were our example And they've been written down so that we can, the ones that are in the new age, the age of Christ coming and having his spirit, they're ours today to live, to live by, to not just look at some neat thing, but they're instructions to literally guide our steps through every single day. Give yourselves to it. Then he goes on and says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Man, that is a big, scary sentence. What he's saying here is he's saying, look, if you, if you stand confident, well, yeah, I mean, I've received the blessings of God. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've gone to church my whole life. I, went, I was an Awana champion, right? I got these things figured out. And you stand in a place of pride or arrogance. Just be careful, because you may fall too. One of the scariest things about Scripture is we see over and over again in the New Testament stories of individuals that looked the part but weren't it. Jesus says that many will come to him on the day. Lord, Lord, did I not go to church and tithe and, and serve and, and join the service of the cities? And did I go to gospel community? Did I not do all these things in your name? And he may say to you, away from me, I never 
knew you. We see in 1 John that there were brothers and sisters that had been with them the whole time that started going away, and the church was, was getting confused by this. Like, these are the people that we were, we were doing all these things. We saw people praying and healing, all these different things. And, and, and the apostle John, inspired by God, says, look, they were never of us. The scriptures are clear. There are many people, just like a lot of Israelites, they experienced the blessing of God. They saw the spirits working, bringing food. They saw Jesus Christ, but they never submitted themselves entirely to him. They never gave themselves to it. This is true of many today as well. I say that not to have you all question your salvation, like I lost it, like you lose your keys. Like, where'd they go? Like, no, not that. I say that because it's a very serious warning that we should take heed to. The only way to stand before God is through Jesus Christ. And the only way to Jesus Christ is to submit yourself entirely to him. It's not a, not a half-hearted thing. It's not like just do the steps and make it look like it. It's a surrender to him. So that when you are confronted by idolatry in your life, you don't go, yeah, but. Instead, you go, okay, Lord, this is painful. I don't want to do it, and I, I'm fighting. I know my, my flesh is fighting, but I'm a new creation, and I want to walk in that new creation. I want you to finish the work that you began in me because you promised to do so. It means that we submit ourselves entirely to him. It means that when he says in here, don't do it. We don't touch the stove just to see if it really is that hot and how painful it really will be. That's what he says. And then he goes on and says something brilliant, okay? Put some air back in the room here for a second. In verse 12, after he says that, he says, verse 13, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Now hear this. This is so important because I can tell you as a pastor, one of the things I hear all the time is no one is, could understand what I'm going through. What this scripture is saying right here is there's not a single temptation that isn't common to man. There isn't a single scenario with which this hasn't already been played out in some way. And it's important for us to understand that because too many of us go, yeah, but yeah, but I'm the exception and therefore this must not make sense for me. Saying, look, no, 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 the temptations. Now I wanna be really clear about temptation. God would never tempt us to sin. He would, he would test us to produce faithfulness and fruit. The enemy, Satan, would tempt us to sin. And both are there, but both are allowed by God. You hear that? Both are allowed by God. Both God is aware of and they are allowed by him. One is to produce fruit. The other is, and he talks about it here. He says, look, just in case you're wondering, whatever struggle you're having, look, how funny is it? The people in Corinth are going, There's, we're struggling with my sacrifice meat to idols. Like, yeah, yeah, your Israelites did that too a couple thousand years earlier. And just so you know, a couple thousand years later, they're probably going to struggle with idolatry too. It's common. It's the same struggles over and over again. Why? Because we want to be God. Because we're sinful, because we're fallen and broken, apart from God, we can do no good. It makes sense. And then he goes on and says, and this is the part I love, God is faithful. I just want to pause for a second on that. God is faithful. When we grumble, we doubt his faithfulness. When we worship something else, we believe it will bring satisfaction that God can't, so we doubt his faithfulness. When we give ourselves to sexual immorality, we believe that the fleeting experience of that excitement is more valuable than submitting ourselves to God. When we test God, we say, God, you're not faithful. I don't believe it. But he says, no, no, God is faithful. And this is how he says it. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Look, he says, look, everything that you're gonna experience is common. God is, it's not like God is going, whoa, I never saw that combination of struggles for you, Brent. I'm sorry, I didn't know a way out for you. 
I mean, the whole, like, the thing going on with your work and the thing with family, I just, I just didn't see that coming. God is not confused or perplexed by any of our circumstances. The way with which you are tempted and struggled and tested is common to man. God is there, he understands it, and he's faithful. And then he says this beautiful promise, guys, this beautiful promise, which is great, just after the whole, like, take heed lest you fall moment. So he says, hey, hey, just in case you're questioning your salvation, and he goes on and says, hey, but God's faithful, and he will always give you a way to escape. Now, I want you to hear this. This is important. He then follows it up with, right after he says escape, he says that you may be able to endure it. Many of us think that the escape from temptation is it just being removed. To be enduring it would mean that our escape may actually be through the temptation, guys, and not give ourselves to it. So it's not just a take it away, God, I'm driving over to this person's house, I shouldn't just give me a flat tire. And, and maybe he will do it that way. But sometimes it's like, no, 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 I want you to turn around. I want you to turn the car and show me that I am, I am faithful. Show me that you believe that. Trust me that the stove is hot, it's not worth it. It doesn't mean that like, okay, God, I want you just to break the computer so I stop looking at porn and say, no, I may, he may break the computer. But he's saying, no, 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 you have to be disciplined. The spirit of God that is in you is stronger and he has given you a way out. Every sin, every temptation that you have, God has shown you a way out. You just don't listen to it or you plow right through it like we all have done time and time again. He's saying, I am faithful. God is faithful. And that, here's the thing. That promise, is that promise is based on what? God's faithfulness, not our, our ability to do it. It's based on him being faithful, not on me. He's saying, look, I will give you a way out. Don't give yourself to idolatry. Don't give yourself to sexual morality. Don't give yourself to testing God. Don't give yourself to, to complaining and grumbling. Don't do like our fathers did. And most of them had the blessing of God. Just like many of you today, you have the ability. You got the church. You got Christ. You got all these people that could be there. And some of you just won't give yourself to it. You keep holding back like you got some better plan. Or many of you think you've given yourself to God, but you've not submitted in any way aspect of your life which is in my mind worse. But a lot of us in here, hear me on this, a lot of us in here genuinely given ourselves to the Lord and we battle our flesh daily. And the promise that comes out of this is, hey, this, this scripture's been completely misused in our lives. Oh yeah, good, I can just be strong enough. God won't ever give me, that's not true. I'm incapable of defeating any sin apart from his spirit. Just realize that really quick. You will not willpower yourself out of sin. You will not muster up enough strength on your own to beat the temptations, surrendering to the Spirit of God. And he will give you a way out. There will always be a way out. And if I had a chance and everyone was willing to be really, really real and you just raise your hand, maybe in the gospel community this week, share stories about how you saw a way out and you didn't take it. Because I guarantee you, just like in my own life, I've always seen it. And that's the promise he has for us. Next week he goes into what our lives really mean. Today we learn just how important it is to listen to God about the stove being hot. We don't need history to repeat itself. We don't have to go through the same things that they did because he preserved it for us to see that, hey, there's a better way. The Apostle Paul, inspired by God, is writing this letter to the church in Corinth that's wrestling with some of the same stuff that you and I are wrestling with today. He's saying you don't have to do it the way that you think you have to. There's another way altogether, and God is faithful to show you that. And here's the thing. If you are a child of God, if you are his, he's going to sanctify you. And some of that's gonna be through the temptation so that you can endure it, so you can learn to endure it. Some of it will be an escape, and he might just say, no, 
tire's flat, you don't get to go there, praise Jesus for that. And in that moment when that happens, guys, stop, acknowledge it, and thank God for his spirit doing a mighty work in your heart. And when he takes you through something and you don't give yourself to, you don't give yourself to idolatry, you don't give yourself to sexual immorality, when he takes you through it and you endure past it and you walk through it, praise God that he was the one strengthening you through it. The band's going to come up and we're going we're gonna to worship. Um, and I, I use that word, it's funny, we say worship here. It's, it's, again, he's going to talk about how next week the idea that we take and we eat of pagan meals and then we eat of the Lord's Supper and how it just should not be. And I think a lot of times when we go to worship God with our, with our voices, we've spent the majority of the week worshiping other things with our voices. And so um, maybe I didn't ask you, John, just maybe we'll just take a second. That's okay. Just a mi- minute to be quiet. Um, John has, it's a, it's a newer song anyways, so you may not be able to sing along with it. But I just want to, before we even open our mouths, I want us to stop and remember that God is faithful. He is so faithful. He's faithful to see you through the, the muck that you're in right now. He's faithful to see you through it. And he's not looking at you as some second half breed of a person saying, no, you're my children. You're my children, and I love you, and I will give you a way through this. And what I create in you will be a far more beautiful than anything gold can ever do. And so before we open our mouths to worship God with our mouths, I want you to reflect on the idea that God is faithful. I want you to reflect on the idea that maybe you need to confess some of the other idols in your life so that you can, you can worship him the way that he intended us to as, as a jealous God that only wants our worship and nothing, doesn't want to share us with anything else. And maybe, maybe you just need to start with the fact that God is faithful and pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ability to, to even worship you. And I think about uh, how Hebrews tells us that you have anchored me through Christ to the throne room of God so that even when I sin, I bring my sin into the throne room. Yet Jesus Christ is saying there, right there, look at me, look at me. I paid for that, I paid for that, I paid for that. I think about the the temptations and the struggles that each of us hear, and yet we hear that Jesus is in the throne room right now, interceding on behalf of every one of his children. God, you are faithful. God, forgive us for trying to repeat history like the Israelites and the people in Corinth. Help us to be a church that truly, truly submits all of our ways to you. We don't look at your scripture and say, yeah, but. We don't try to find some exception. Instead, we just surrender ourselves entirely to your spirit, what he wants to do for your glory and your glory alone, God, because we have people around us that need to know you. And God, for the people in the room today that um, they don't know what they believe. They're questioning you. They, they think that they like the idea of you, but they realize in their life that they're, they're not anywhere close to following you. God, I pray that you would just show them your goodness. Show them your faithfulness. God, for the people that are in here today that, that keep struggling, and in their struggles, they doubt, they doubt you in them. God, I pray that you give them the foundation recognizing that you are their rock, that nothing, and I mean nothing, no sin, no one can snatch them out of, the, out of your hand. And so, God, I pray that we be a community of people that worship you with our lives. We are a living sacrifice, as Romans tells us to be. Every aspect of our lives, not just our breath, not just our eyes, not just our our money, but every part of our lives, our jobs, our families, every part of our lives is about worshiping you. And God, we pray that as we do that, we pray that you would come back. Come back quickly. Write everything. Finish what you started so that we can see you for an eternity so that we could feast with you without fear of idolizing anything else. We praise you, Jesus, for what you're doing. We praise you for what you've done. And we give this, this, just this time of silence to you, God. We pray that you would 
God, I know that you speak, and so I pray that your children would hear your voice in the silence. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.